You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. In the old days, you couldn't go very far on a holiday. Your destination was no farther than your legs or a horse's legs could take you. All right, Buttercup. I reckon we've gone a full 15 miles today. So great to get away from it all. Let's set up camp in this exotic valley. Today, there are few spots on the planet that you can't visit, and many more that you can. Travel to Nepal, climb the Himalayas, partway, check. Dive the Great Barrier Reef off Australia? Check. Take a selfie with Antarctic penguins? Check, check. But maybe your grandchildren and great-grandchildren will consider your earthly itinerary entirely too provincial. Their travel opportunities will include crossing another frontier. Yes, space. More specifically, the space of our cosmic backyard, the solar system where the travel brochure, now a digital hologram, invites you to visit the mountains of Mars and other exotic locales. Venus, the hottest destination in the solar system. Today's forecast is 800 degrees and partly cloudy. Tonight, also 800 degrees, and tomorrow, also 800 degrees. Now that spacecraft have flown past or orbited every body in the solar system, the next step could be to send out tourists. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak, and welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology, and in this episode, we explore the solar system not as scientists or robotic spacecraft, but as tourists, imagining what it would be like to choose another cosmic body as our holiday destination. How long would a trip to Mars take? How do you pack to visit an asteroid? Does Pluto have children-friendly activities? It's a solar system vacation. When I was young, back before the invention of the mechanical pencil, a family vacation meant piling my brothers and me into the back of a station wagon, driving Virginia highways from morning till dusk, and spending a few days on a jellyfish-infested beach while the sun turned us cherry red. Was that fun? Well, you have to update your definition of fun, I think. (laughs) Well, future holidays, that is, those of your grandchildren, whether they be great-great or great-great-great or great-great-great-great, may not be limited to your county, your country, or even your planet. Robotic craft have landed on, orbited, or flown by all the bodies in our solar system. But why should they have all the fun while we watch from our gravity-bound armchairs? Sometime during this century, it might be routine to take a holiday vacation to low Earth orbit, to the moon, or even to our little ruddy buddy Mars. Visits to other destinations in the solar system, like Pluto, well, that's more speculative. But look, this is the first time in history when we have good data on all the major bodies of the solar system. So we invited astronomer Andrew Fracknoy to share with you a thought experiment, one that he routinely gives his Foothill College students. What would it be like to vacation on other bodies of the solar system? We've also asked scientists to weigh in on some of his proposed destinations. For example, is there anything we should remember to pack to hike around dusty, dry Mars? Okay, so here's the question that Andy poses to his astronomy students. How would you plan a honeymoon that's out of this world? 
this is an exercise I actually give to my students in my planetary astronomy class. After they've studied the planets and moons of the solar system, I ask them to imagine that in the future we're going to have interplanetary tourism. And I give them the little assignment that they are a boutique travel agency out to serve the uh, the 1% who can afford these kind of trips. And a, a young woman comes to them and says, uh, I have a lot of money and I have a, a sweetheart who's marrying me who loves astronomy and I do too. Where should I go to have a cosmic honeymoon? And then the students are asked to put together a honeymoon tour, once in a lifetime honeymoon tour for this uh, well-to-do couple. Okay, so planning the honeymoon. I mean, a honeymoon. That, that we're talking about two weeks. Can you go anywhere in two weeks? Well, this is this is of course what we have to imagine. We have to imagine that we have faster travel than we have today, and we also have to imagine that they're well protected in their honeymoon ship because most of these destinations, their first deep breath will be their last deep breath, and uh, there's radiation dangers around all the giant planets. So we've eliminated that issue pretty much as part of the consideration. We'll, we'll say that they have all the protection they need during their honeymoon. Okay. All right. So what's stop number one? Well, I think first and foremost, you're going to want to go to Mars. Mars is among the planets the most hospitable for us, even though even there it would be uh, a lot of equipment to keep you alive. But on Mars, there are some not-to-be-missed tourist opportunities. The first of these is the giant volcano, which we are calling Mount Olympus, home of the gods in Greek mythology. Mount Olympus is three times the height of Mount Everest in terms of height, but even more impressive in terms of how much space the base of the mountain takes up. It's larger than the state of Arizona or the state of Washington, whichever you'd like to have for comparison. So this is an enormous mountain. It's not just climbing you've got to commit yourself to, but going across the distance from the base all the way to the summit. Probably over 100 miles of trekking in the horizontal direction as well as about 15 miles in the vertical direction. So I think you need to train quite a bit even in lower gravity to make that trip. You also have to take your own oxygen. You have to take your oxygen. You have to take food and water because there's not going to be any of those available on your way up. And I suspect that the snack bars will be few and far between as you go climbing. I can imagine that it will also be rather cold up there. Yes. Now, that's the other problem is that not only is the air made up of 95% carbon dioxide, the stuff we like to breathe out rather than in, but the temperatures are freezing. So you would need to have a very good protective suit with your own uh, atmosphere that's breathable for you attached, and you would need to have quite a bit of thermal protection, particularly if you're going to be spending many days doing the climb. How about other attractions on Mars? Because uh, going up is not the only uh, possibility there, right? There you go. The other one that I think most people will want to go to is Mariner Valley, the great rift system or valley system on Mars, which uh, makes our Grand Canyon look a little bit like a ditch in comparison. <laughs> uh, this is a system of faults and canyons on Mars which is as long as our country is wide. This is a, almost exactly the size of the United States from coast to coast. So you have a lot of different opportunities to climb. And like the Grand Canyon, there are steep cliffs, there are avalanches. There's a whole series of interesting geological things you can look at. And it's tremendously varied over the thousands of miles that you can explore. I wonder whether they're going to have donkeys to take you down Yeah, I, or I, take you back up, I should say. <laughs> I suspect the donkeys will be mechanical donkeys rather than living ones because they can't breathe on Mars either. Well, what about a funicular or maybe a cable car up uh, Mount Olympus? Well, there you go. I think, again, the construction costs will be so enormous that for a long time it's going to be foot power or maybe jet power that's going to get the tourists up there. More from Andy throughout the show, but, but first, Seth... What do you make of his proposed Martian vacation? Well, Mars is a good choice uh, because it's so close. Of course, the moon is closer, but, you know, we've already been to the moon. You start with Mars because it's the planet, it's the world out there that's most like the Earth as far as we know. So the recommendations from Andy, they're, they're good ones. The Mariner Valley, Mount Olympus, those are two of the most famous features in the solar system. Of course, you want to go there. But it might be good to get a second opinion. And we have one. 
Lori Fenton is a planetary scientist who studies the atmosphere of Mars. So, Laurie, Andy gave us an idea what a holiday on Mars would be like. We could climb Mount Olympus or go down into the Mariner Valley. Sounds like great places to get some exercise. Would you really recommend these as a holiday? Well, I would go if I was given the chance. (laughs) You would? (laughs) Of course. I've been wanting to go to Mars for decades now. I'll probably always want to go. Well, let's see. Olympus Mons would be a fantastic place to climb, but there are some dangers to it. One is the winds. Being an atmospheric scientist, that's always what I'm thinking about. During the day, you'd have these upslope winds that might help you climb. But at night, that turns around and you get these very strong drainage winds that pour down the slope. And, man, you better have a nice tent or some kind of shelter to to protect you from that. But, But the atmosphere is so thin on Mars. Do these winds amount to anything? Not as much as they would on Earth, but they do come screaming down. That's probably the place with the fastest winds on all of Mars. So if anything is going to turn over your tent, it's going to be there on Olympus Mons. My goodness. Okay. And and, and what about uh, the Mariner Valley? I mean, that really sounds neat to me. There's this valley. It's thousands of miles long and wide and deep, and it just makes the Grand Canyon look like a ditch, as Andy suggested. That's right. Uh, can you imagine standing at the edge of one of those things? I mean, that, that canyon system goes on for thousands of kilometers or, or thousands of miles, if you prefer. It doesn't matter. It's just big, <laughs> whatever units you use. It's so big and so wide that you probably can't see across it. And if it's a clear day, I don't know, you might get a really nice view. If it's a dusty day, maybe not so much. But again, I'll come back to the atmosphere. During the day, you get these big upslope winds that come screaming up the walls. So if you are interested in hang gliding, so if you can get a hang glider big enough to carry you on a place with an atmosphere so thin like on Mars, that's the best place to jump off because you have this big thermal that lasts most of the day, that all the time that the sun is up in the sky, you're going to have this big thermal pushing up so you can leap right off there and it'll carry you up. So that's, yeah, that's where I'd want to go. The, the, the Mariner Valley. I, what about the dust in the atmosphere? You kind of touched on that, but uh, would, would that be a real problem? I mean, even aside from the photography that it might get in the way of. Well, it might make your photography more interesting. It'll change your lighting conditions, certainly. Um that's going to depend on how strong the storm is and, and exactly what you're worried about. If you're worried about your electronics, you could probably design your equipment around that. If you're working with solar panels, then it depends on how strong the storm is. Um, there are dust devils. I don't know if you've been out in the desert, but pretty much any place on Earth where it's dry and there's a lot of dust during the day, and only during the daytime when the sun is up, there will be these little vortices that form and can kick up dust. Do they ever become something like a tornado? Do you have Martian tornadoes? <laughs> well, real tornadoes on Earth are dependent on um, the latent heat from water condensing. So we don't have that happening in the Martian atmosphere so much. So it depends on a thunderstorm, really. We don't have thunderstorms on Mars, but we do get dust devils that are the size of tornadoes. They might be spinning as fast as a tornado, but... The atmosphere is so thin that it doesn't really have enough kick to damage you. It might knock over your camera or something like that, but it's not going to really, it's not going to lift you up into the air like Dorothy or anything like that. I was going to say. Laurie Fenton, thanks so very much for speaking with us. It's been a pleasure, Seth. Thank you. Laurie Fenton is a planetary scientist at the SETI Institute. Okay, now maybe Mars isn't your bag. Astronomer Andy Fracknoy has a plan B for holiday travel, or rather a planet B. Just turn your spaceship around. Well, now you can choose to go the other way toward the sun. And on the planet Venus, where you would need tremendous thermal protection from the heat rather than the cold, one of the great attractions is that there is a lava channel. Uh, We don't know if it has lava in it or not. If you've seen lava channels in Hawaii and so on, we're talking about feet across for most of them. Here is a single canyon system, again, some kind of a, a channel system, which has maintained its width of about a mile for more than 4,000 miles on Venus. So this is called the Baltus Valley. And I think if people can survive the tremendous heat with proper equipment, it will surely be a tourist attraction. I can imagine what the landscape will look like on Mars and maybe even a little bit of what it would look like from the top of Mount Olympus. I mean, we have plenty of photos of Mars, but what would it look like on Venus? I mean, would you even have enough light to see anything? You're at the bottom of this enormous uh, cloud deck. That's right. The atmosphere of Venus is much thicker than the atmosphere on Earth. And that's why the temperature is built up so much, because we have a global warming gone wild on our sister planet Venus. But not only that, it's terribly cloudy. 
so that there hasn't been a clear day on Venus for billions of years. And so under that tremendously thick cloud deck, the light will be very reddish and uh, quite a bit lower than you're used to on Earth. Even though we're closer to the sun, the lighting will be darker on Venus. But there are many other places to go besides Venus. If that's too hot for you for your honeymoon, I think we can go to many other places in the solar system. And we'll hear what those are in a moment. Astrobiologist David Grinspoon has devoted much of his career to studying Venus. He contributed to the European Space Agency's Venus Express mission that studied the planet's cloudy atmosphere beginning in 2006. And his book, Venus Revealed, explores in depth what's been called our planetary twin. Uh, Venus is a place that will in some ways seem very familiar because the gravity is almost the same as Earth. You know, um, unlike anywhere else in the solar system, it will feel very familiar in that way. And so for hiking, it's a great place. And of course, the landscapes are just tremendous. There are uh, some of the most beautiful volcanoes in the solar system, a wide variety, some of which are still active. There are places you can go and watch active volcanic flows. If you go to the night side, there are places where you can see the ground glowing from the great heat. Uh, and that eerie optical effect is just something you've never experienced before. I would also recommend the atmosphere for some really just bizarre extreme sports experiences. There are places where you can base jump for 10 miles into that strange murky atmosphere before you get low enough where you just start to see the surface but then you start to feel too hot and you push the button and fire your rocket and go back up to the cloud level. Uh, either that or the extreme bungee jumping from the cloud-based platforms where you can again fall more than 10 miles into that very strange, murky atmosphere. These are experiences you won't find anywhere else in the solar system. And, and uh, for, uh, for thrill seekers, I, I highly recommend it. Oh, you sound like a, a, a good pitch man for, for Venus. I recall reading somewhere that there's sulfuric acid in the atmosphere of Venus. That sounds like it could be a, a bummer for the bungee jumpers. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You, uh, I, I, I do recommend the clouds as a place to visit to jump through, to fly through in your wingsuits and so forth. There's a lot of fun extreme sports up there, but you don't want to expose your skin directly to those clouds because they are made of concentrated sulfuric acid. You do need a good suit. I recommend one made of Kevlar or some other strong and acid-resistant material. The, the pressure and temperature up in the clouds are actually very moderate, so you don't need a very thick suit, but you do need one that uh, will make sure that your skin does not come in contact with those acid clouds, or that would be a, an aspect of the vacation that you would wish to forget but probably wouldn't. <laughs> that would be a real burner. Any child-friendly options? Well, <laughs> if, if you uh, have the right suit, and, and they do make them uh, in children's sizes, I believe, I would recommend bringing uh, kids. It's certainly something they'll never forget. And if you want to get them interested in uh, comparative planetary geology, then I think taking them to uh, explore some of these geological sites on Venus will be something that they would definitely appreciate. I can't tell you how many parents have said to me that they're trying to get their kids interested in comparative planetary geology. David Grinspoon, thanks for talking to us about a really hot destination. Thank you, Seth. My pleasure. David Grinspoon is an astrobiologist who models and studies the environments of other planets and considers where there might be life in the universe. Okay, Seth, a blink decision. You ready? Yeah. Mars or Venus, which one would you go to? I go to Venus. Everybody's going to go to Mars. Nobody's going to opt to go to Venus. So I guess that's part of the appeal. And besides, you know, I can envision Mars. I've seen photos. I've not seen many photos of the surface of Venus. Okay, so maybe you find Mars a little bit too conventional, or maybe Venus is just too steamy. Fortunately, you have other choices. Coming up, more tips from Andrew Fracknoy to help you plan your spacefaring holiday. His next set of top spots are not planets, but you'll still moon over them. 
It's Solar System Vacation from Big Picture Science. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, we're accelerating our imaginations to escape velocity and beyond in order to consider what it would be like to vacation on another solar system body. So far, we've checked out the brochure recommendations for Mars and Venus, and you might have guessed that they would be recommended as they're the planets closest to us. Everyone will go to Mars like everyone goes to Paris today, especially people living in France. So you're thinking that you want a path less trodden. Let's move to the outer solar system, as there are some big attractions there, and we mean big. But as picturesque as Jupiter and Saturn are, there's no vacationing on those gas giants. It's hard to hike around on thick clouds of methane and ammonia, no matter how much training you've had in extreme sports. But the outer solar system has some other exotic offerings. There are more than 100 moons spinning through its spaces, and some of these moons might be appropriate for your next honeymoon. Uh, I don't know how that would compare with the first three, but... Astronomer Andy Fracknoy gives us his recommendation. So I want to suggest one that maybe is not so well known to your listeners, and that's the greatest lover's leap in the solar system. It's on a moon of Uranus's called Miranda. Now, Miranda's an unusual-looking moon. It, it looks like one of my worst students put it together during a nightmare. The different parts of it don't seem to fit really well. And on this moon, Miranda, there is a cliff system, which is, to the best of our ability to tell, one of the deepest or perhaps the deepest we have. Some estimates are that it's 12 miles deep. Now, Miranda's a relatively small moon. So if you are a 200-pound man on Earth or woman, you would weigh 1.6 pounds on Miranda. So if two lovers were to take a leap off this 12-mile high cliff, you could have a long, long time to regret your decision. Calculations are that it would take you over 10 minutes, perhaps about 12 minutes, to make the fall, during which time you could make up and really regret that you jumped off. This is so well now understood to be a potential lover's leap that the astronomers have decided to call it Verona Cliffs after the location of the doomed lovers in Romeo and Juliet. Now, you couldn't put on one of these sort of uh, flying squirrel kind of suits and sort of fly your way down, right? There's no atmosphere to uh, allow you to do that. That's right. The only kind of flying suit you could have would be a jetpack because it's essentially a vacuum there. I've got to say that this is, you know, this is an attraction that I didn't see in any of the previous brochures <laughs> that I've consulted on, on this matter. I can't take it anymore. The world is conspiring against us. And what we feel for each other is natural. We are 15 and three quarters years old. I'm actually 16. We're basically adults, but no one lets us do anything, ever. Even running away to Miranda is hopeless. They won't let us be together for real. We're star-crossed. Oh my god, it's just like... Yeah! The movie Spaceballs, where Princess Vespa and the hero Lone Star are kept apart. But then they get together and sail off in the Winnebago, so that's cool. So romantic. We even use the L word with each other. We totally like each other. Why shouldn't we express it outside of Instagram? We're old enough to spend the night together, waiting to get tickets to the premiere of the new Star Wars film, and yet it is forbidden. Just the thought that we might sit apart in a movie makes this one part of my stomach hurt. That our deep like for each other is being denied by our parents is not just a trope of popular culture, but really happening. There's only one way to express our teenage angst, hormonal mood swings, and despair at this untenable situation. We will jump 
off Verona Cliffs. It, wait, what? I was thinking we would make out at Miranda Point. But, but no, jumping off the cliff is a way stronger symbolic statement. On the count of three, ready? Yeah. One, two, three, jump! Ah, oh, I've changed my, oh my mind. Oh my god. No. What have we done? Um, we aren't falling very fast. I forgot. Gravity on Miranda is way less of that on Earth. There's no atmosphere, so it doesn't even sound like we're falling. What a ripoff. I'm going to hit the Wind Sounds app on my phone to make this more real. Hey, look, now I'm falling for you. <laughs> it's not funny. Because of Miranda's weak gravitational field, we have more than enough time to reflect on the tragic consequences of our forbidden like. If only your parents had lightened up and let us spend the night waiting to get tickets for the movie. But my parents were cool with it. What? Yeah, they trust you, and besides, all the other kids will be there. It's your parents who had the problem. No, no, they saw the original Star Wars film in 1977. They were totally into our going. My mom even got me some Princess Leia earmuffs. They're in my backpack here. See? Those are cool. Yeah, they go with the new Yoda tattoo on my arm. See? Cool. So we can go to Star Wars The Force Awakens premiere and sit together. Yeah! Wait, no, we can't. Look what we've done. We jumped off a cliff. We made an irreversibly emotionally driven decision due to immaturity, archetypical misunderstanding of who said what, and our near obsession with the Star Wars Septology. Any moment now, we'll hit the ground. I'm sorry I took my brother's lunch money. I'm sorry I accidentally kissed Emma from math class when she asked to see my braces. I'm sorry that I hacked into the Pentagon. Wait, I just realized. Because of the low gravity, we'll hardly feel the landing. You can turn off your wind app now. Okay. Here it comes. Ah, we're on the ground. We made it. You told me that you didn't like Emma. Well, maybe you're not ready to take the leap and visit Miranda, but there are plenty of other moons to choose from. Now, a lot of them are pretty darn cold, but for those who like it hot, there's a moon of Jupiter that is the most volcanically active body in the solar system. Another place that I love is the moon of Jupiter is called Io, which, as you know, may be one of the most dangerous places. Not only is the moon within the radiation belt of Jupiter, where your uh, genetic material would get fried. But in addition, this is a moon in a constant state of volcanic eruption. So you never know whether the ground you stand on might erupt in some sort of a terrible cataclysm. But there are volcanoes, there are volcanic jets and geysers on this moon, which can push material into space to a height of 180 miles. Imagine a volcanic eruption which goes 180 miles into the sky. The giant volcano called Pele had one of its jets recorded to that height. So if you're a volcano fan, Io, the moon of Jupiter, is definitely going to be a, a destination for your tour. And all the sulfur you can eat. That's right. <laughs> if it had an atmosphere, it would smell like rotten eggs. Andy says that Io is volcanically active. Are there many volcanoes on it? Oh, yeah. According to uh, astronomy lore, Io most resembles a pizza. You have to understand, it's, it's the closest big moon there to Jupiter, and it's being tugged by Jupiter's gravity, but also the gravity of some other, the big moons. And as a result, it's made kind of hot on the inside, and the volcanism is the way it gets rid of all that heat. What would represent the volcanoes on a pizza? Well, maybe particularly hot pepperoni. Oh, so it's the heat of a pizza, not, say, the sausage or the mushrooms that would rise up? Well, I'm not sure how to answer that except to say my impression is that it was always the appearance because it's kind of modeled. It's like <laughs> it's round and it's got all this kind of structure on it. So the astronomers told you that Io resembled a pizza and you didn't follow up with a question in <laughs> what way does it resemble a pizza? You, you know what? It was what was presented to me as conventional wisdom. Who was I to challenge it? If, it, if they say it looks like a pizza, hey, it looks like a pizza to me. Do all the other solar system bodies resemble some kind of food? Well, I don't know. There, there are a couple that are sort of lasagna-like. Name one. Uh, I'll get back to you on that. But uh, let me buy some time here for a moment, and I'll come back to Io and explain why it's important that this moon looks like a pizza. I mean, not in terms, of course, of it being appetizing to astronomers, but it illustrates something that's actually very common in the universe, and we never even thought about it, you know, 50, 80 years ago, and that is that you can have something like a moon far away from its, from its sun, 
where you would say, that's going to be one cold place, and it might not be a cold place. You know, the temperatures on Io, if it weren't for all these squishing and squeezing things, would be, you know, minus 300 degrees, and yet it's warm enough to have volcanoes. And that's because of what's called tidal heating, what we just described, the, the gravitational pulls. But this is a very common thing, and that means there are worlds out there that are, you know, way, way far away from their suns that could have life because they're warm. So when the moon hits your eye like a great pizza pie, it might be the moon I.O. Yes, <laughs> that would be an eye-opener. <laughs> well, what about other moons of Jupiter? Well, the next moon out there of Jupiter is Europa. And, you know, that just looked like a white billiard ball for a long time until we got, you know, highly detailed photos from some of the early space missions. So that was, you know, kind of uninteresting compared to a pizza. And but, unappetizing, unless you put chocolate on it. I don't know how you would eat a white yeah, billiard ball. But, but nonetheless, despite its, if you will, mild appearance, uh, Europa turns out to be a very interesting moon because there's a big ocean underneath that ice, and that might have some life. So people are interested in Europa, even though in photographs it's a kind of dull-looking. Now, maybe Venus is like cotton candy because it's sort of steamy fluffy. and fluffy. I, I don't know how fluffy. But it is. I, I, mean, I think that if you're going to go for foodstuffs, the best things to look at are maybe the asteroids because they've got all these strange shapes. They're very seldom round, and they look like peanuts and potatoes and, and, and snack foods. So uh, if, if your mind is on food and you want to find an analog in space, uh, check out the asteroids. I still want to know what in our solar system resembles lasagna. Oh, well, I think it's the same solar system bodies that sort of look like eggplant, but not quite. No, I don't know. <laughs> okay, admit it. it. It wasn't a good comparison. No, I guess maybe the lasagna was off base. But, uh, you know, there's some uh, sedimentary deposits on Mars that kind of look like lasagna. Coming up, more from Andy and other scientists as we round out our solar system holiday travel itinerary. We'll visit everyone's favorite planet-turned-dwarf planet, but still a planet, according to planetary scientists, and learn about the difficulties of playing catch on an asteroid. It's Solar System Vacation on Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we're rounding out our imaginative tour of the solar system, considering where our great-great-great-grandchildren might visit. We've covered the inner solar system and some of the outer. But for the truly adventurous who want to escape the madding crowd... Consider Pluto, just opened up, and already a favorite destination for those whose tastes run to cryonic holiday-making. If you want to go really far out, I'll mention one more, which is now that we've started to explore Pluto, there are going to be ice mountains on Pluto that I know some of the uh, extreme sports fans are definitely going to want to climb. And just the most recent set of images from the Pluto-Charon system, Pluto has a moon half its size called Charon, show a crevice some kind of a canyon out of which a two to three mile high ice mountain is coming. So it looks like a giant mouth with a foot coming out of it. And I can think of all kinds of politicians that could be named after. <laughs> My name is Mark Showalter. I study Pluto as a member of the science team for the New Horizons spacecraft. I also work at the SETI Institute. 
I enjoyed uh, Andy's little little preamble about uh, visiting Pluto. I second that. I think it would be a wonderful destination. I think climbing those ice mountains at the southern end of what's called Tombal Regio would be extraordinary. They are they're probably more than half the height of Everest when you consider the fact that Everest, although it's 29,000 feet tall, is actually starting from a baseline of about 15,000 feet. So if you were going to climb these ice mountains on Pluto, it would be quite an endeavor. I mean, you would be devoting your entire vacation probably to getting to the peak and coming back down. Yes. Well, at least one thing you don't have to worry about is that the air gets thinner because the air is already thin. So you're going to be taking your uh, your breathing apparatus with you, I hope. Uh, I certainly hope you're going to be dressing warmly because it's probably uh, 50, 60 degrees Kelvin out there. That's incredibly cold. I've seen some uh, posters out on the web about skiing the mountains of, of Pluto. And the bad news there is that, in fact, the reason ice is slippery on Earth is because when we put a little pressure on it, we get this very thin layer of liquid water. And that's what makes it slippery. Well, that can't happen on Pluto. You don't have uh, it's way too cold and there's not enough atmosphere for anything liquid to form. So you won't have sledding on the uh, plains of Pluto or you won't have skiing on the mountains of Pluto. It just doesn't work that way. I was going to ask about the plains, if that would be a nice area to trek across and perhaps use a sled, but you just cross that off the list. You can't use a sled. You can't use a sled. You could certainly uh, have a, a wheeled cart if with big wheels and, and, you know, maybe put your sled dogs inside their little space sled dog suits and uh, and traverse the uh, the plains. I'm sure it would be magnificent. I mean, this is just a, a remarkably... Uh, complex and beautiful world that we've seen now for the first time. Uh, the scenery is just breathtaking, and to see it from ground level, I'm sure would be amazing. And by the way, congratulations on the successful mission. Oh, thank you. It's been a, it's been a highlight of my career. What was one of the biggest surprises from the New Horizons flyby and those images? I think everybody is awestruck by how young the surface of Pluto is. Uh, you think about most small bodies in the solar system, think of Ceres, for example, where there's an orbiter, a NASA orbiter there right now. It's a very interesting object, but it's mostly covered with craters. And when we got our very first high-resolution image of Pluto, it was part of this Sputnik planum, uh, this big, very bright region, and there was not a single crater to be seen. Uh, there's enough atmospheric activity and there is enough uh, weather, in effect, on Pluto that you're essentially depositing layer after layer on top of this plane covering up any history of craters that might be there. So it's a very, very young surface, and nobody expected that. Now, I'm curious. When you go to Pluto for your holiday and you turn around to take a selfie, okay, <laughs> now do you have to worry about keeping your back to the sun? How big does the sun look from Pluto? The sun is a very, very small – well, of course, it's very small in the sky uh, – the sun on Pluto is about as bright as a full moon on Earth. So, uh, you know, you probably want to take a flashlight on your trip, for, amongst other things, and, and flash photography is probably going to be uh, the thing you want to try. Uh, doing that selfie, maybe a tripod would help just to make sure you don't get uh, a little bit of smear. But, yeah, it would, uh, it would certainly be possible and quite easy to do a selfie. You just need to be very careful, don't move very fast. Did the New Horizons team get the equivalent of the famous Apollo Earthrise photo that shows the Earth rising from the vantage point of the moon? Is there equivalent of that from New Horizons and Pluto? Well, not exactly. We did get some uh, beautiful images from the far side of Pluto looking back where you can see this ring of light, which is the light uh, refracted through the uh, very thin atmosphere of Pluto. It's a stunning image and something, of course, you could never even imagine seeing from Earth. You have to be on the other side of Pluto to see it. So there are going to be some, and of course, we haven't seen 95% of the data that was taken by the spacecraft. It's still up there on the spacecraft and will be downlinked over the next year or so. So we have many, many surprises left in store, but there are certainly going to be a whole raft of iconic images of the Pluto system uh, for us to uh, treasure forever. So we'll stay tuned for updated travel tips from you as you learn more about about Pluto and its moons. That's right. Within uh, the next year or so, we'll have all the data on the ground, and there will be a great new story to tell. Mark Showalter, thank you so much for speaking with us. It's been a pleasure. Mark Showalter is a planetary scientist at the SETI Institute and member of the New Horizons science team. And finally, on our solar system tour, objects in the Kuiper Belt where Pluto resides, well, there are certainly destinations you can brag about with your friends. But if your budget doesn't allow for the Kuiper Belt, you can always tighten your belt, not travel quite as far, and visit the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. There are thousands upon thousands of these rocks careening through space. Just the place for a boutique holiday.
Michael Bush works on planetary astronomy, focusing on small bodies in the solar system, such as near-Earth asteroids. Michael, it's difficult for us to go to asteroids now. We sent a few spacecraft, takes a long time to get there, this, that, and the other. But it's only the beginning of the 21st century. Suppose we're 100, 150 years down the line, and uh, maybe it's pretty easy to go to an asteroid. Would you recommend it? Would it be an interesting way to spend a weekend or maybe a couple of weeks? So there's lots of places to choose from. You can talk about the near-Earth asteroids. They are shortest amount of travel time. They're also the warmest in terms of the temperature. You go out to the main asteroid belt, there's a lot more objects to choose from, but they're very, very cold. So bring warm clothes. Okay. So what would it be like? I mean, imagine you're in a rocket ship and you've paid for this vacation. You've got your, you know, significant other with you. You're looking out the window of this craft and you're headed for one of these near-Earth asteroids. Now, typically how big are they? So the biggest near-Earth asteroids are about 20 to 30 kilometers across. Most are a lot smaller, one kilometer, for example. And when you get down to that size, objects are not round. So if you look out the window at Mars, you see a sphere. You look at Saturn, you see something that's a little bit flattened, but mostly a sphere. You look at a near-Earth asteroid, you don't see a sphere. You'll have some bifurcated shape. You'll have huge boulders that are a large fraction of the surface. You'll have cliffs that are 20% the diameter of the object. Very dramatic scenery. So, Michael, a vacationing couple goes to an asteroid. They arrive at the hotel there, assuming there's a hotel there, and uh, they're thinking, well, what are we going to do here for a week? What are they going to find? What sort of activities would you recommend they consider? You are on this asteroid. The gravity is very, very low. You can literally fly. You push off the ground. Don't jump too fast or you'll go flying off into space completely. You go slow enough. You fly up into space. You go into some unpredictable orbit around the asteroid. A few hours later, you touch down again. And the impact is about the same as if you'd taken a step on the Earth. Maybe you could just fly around it for a couple of hours with a small little uh, seltzer bottle or something to squirt some gas out the back so you can return to the asteroid. So uh, there was this movie a few years back, Wally, where they have the robot in space, and he propels himself around using a fire extinguisher. This actually would work if you were in orbit around an asteroid. You can move around with that very small amount of velocity change. You have to be careful, though. If you go too fast, you'll miss the object, and you'll go off to the side, and then you just fly off into space. Okay, so, so you have the opportunity to do something that, as a kid, you always wanted to do, which is to fly. So you have some other possibilities here. Playing catch on an asteroid is actually far more exciting than it may sound, because the gravity field of an asteroid is lumpy. It's not a sphere. So if you throw the ball in one direction, it comes down a few hundred meters away on the other side of the object. You throw it in a different direction, it loops around in orbit a few times, and you reach over your shoulder and grab it as it comes back again. You throw it a little bit faster, it stays in orbit until next Tuesday. Okay. All which right. you probably want to avoid because somebody else's game will get a little bit confused by all the projectiles flying around. Yeah, you have a week's history of games there. Anything else? I mean, I, I guess you can just go for a hike. You can hike the whole, the whole world in, in an afternoon, presumably. I'm not sure hiking is the right word here, but you could go outside and sort of rock climb your way around the entire object. I can't say hiking because normal walking doesn't work. You throw yourself into space again. So you hold on with your hands and slowly work your way around the surface. You just sort of crawl your way around. You could do some interesting bouldering. And uh, what about the sites? A lot of asteroids have moons. So you'll have asteroid a kilometer wide and it has a satellite maybe two miles away from it that's say half a mile wide so you're sitting there on the surface you look up and you see this large mountain flying slowly across the sky occupying you know 20 or 30 degrees which is a lot bigger than anything we have flying in the sky on the earth and if you have really good aim you can jump into space and fly around and land on the moon and then jump back again would a cow be able to do that i have not considered putting the cow into a spacesuit. <laughs> And something we haven't touched on here, but of course, all this time, you're going to be in a spacesuit. I really hope so. So, Michael, I mean, is this going to actually happen? Given enough time, uh, um, it's not going to happen perhaps in our lifetime, but uh, eventually, will tourism to the asteroids be on the, uh, on the agenda for people? So we talk now about sending humans to near-Earth asteroids. It has not happened yet, but it might in the next couple of decades. If space travel continues to become popular, you get a large space-based economy, probably. Would you sign up if you had that opportunity? If I have that decision to make, that is a really good problem to have. Michael Bush, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you.
Michael Bush is a planetary astronomer at the SETI Institute. You know, it sounds a little bit weird, but aside from visiting an asteroid, in the deep, deep future, we might actually live there. Uh, Famous physicist Freeman Dyson has projected that because these small rocks have everything you really need for a gusto-grabbing lifestyle, humans of the future will actually be camped out largely on the asteroids, as weird as it sounds. But why? Well, they've got what you need, and there's a lot of real estate. If you add up all the acreage on all the asteroids, it turns out to be like 10,000 times as much as we have here on Earth. So if you have a really big population, that's what you do. But what I mean is why leave Earth? Because you have a big population? Oh, yeah. Yeah, if you don't leave Earth, then you're going to be constrained both in terms of how much space you have, but also, you know, raw materials and things like that. Well, if you were living on an asteroid and you wanted to get back to Earth, could you just wait for it to become a comet and then ride it back to the planet? <laughs> well, uh, actually, they're in whatever orbit they're in. So either they're going to come close to the Earth, which might allow you to hitch a ride on some specialized craft and get back home, or they're not. Turning an asteroid into a comet is a bit of a trick. Comets and asteroids are not all that different, of course, uh, but comets usually have more ice and uh, comets are defined mostly by their tails, actually. And comets, uh, when they get close to the sun, some of that ice uh, spews out as you know, vapor, uh, other gases as well, so you see the tail. But no, if you want to come back home, you just have to hope that it has the right orbit or you have to have a rocket that's bolted to the side of your asteroid. One of the jobs of NASA is to protect us from asteroids. I, I don't know that that's their job, actually. Uh, their charter these days is to at least find them all and get their orbits. Now, they so far haven't found anything that uh, looks terribly dangerous. I mean, there are small ones all the time that they have yet to get the orbits of. But, uh, you know, they know there are no big ones that are going to hit us in the next couple of decades. That's good news. But they don't keep an eye out for comets. Well, they keep an eye out for comets. Actually, most comets are found by amateurs because a lot of the comets, either they're known comets, and we know about all the comets that are known comets. It's almost by definition. But there are what are called long-period comets that come in. These are comets that get disturbed way, way out beyond the Kuiper belt in the so-called Oort cloud. That's where the comets are hanging out. And there are a lot of them. There may be 100 billion of them. It's a lot of comet pleasure. And they're just sitting there slowly, I mean really slowly, orbiting the sun, not doing very much. And occasionally they sort of get close to one another that, you know, kicks one out of the Oort cloud and it comes to the inner solar system. And you want to know about that. But they're usually seen fairly far away and, uh, you know, people get their orbits rather quickly. Thank you for those comet comets. Yes. Yes, and you notice there were no commas in those comet comets. <laughs> now, what all these locations have in common, <laughs> whether it's Mars or Venus or the moon of Uranus, Miranda, is that this is going to be extreme vacationing. I mean, you're going to have to bring either your your sweat clothes or your warmest clothes and, of course, a spacesuit for everything. No, that's true. And what we haven't heard about here is the amount of time it's going to take to get there. You know, every, all the focus is on the accommodations and the activities, and, and not even the accommodations very much, but nothing about the fact that it might take a very long time to get to one of these places. You know, the New Horizons spacecraft spent almost 10 years getting to Pluto. Now, you know, in the time of our great, 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 great grandkids, maybe it isn't 10 years, but it's probably not going to be 10 days. It's going to be a very long trip. So uh, keep that in mind, too. Well, at the beginning of this, Andy said that this thought experiment came with two caveats. One is that we would be able to do this in time, and the other is that we, we would be protected from the elements, from the radiation and from the cold and so forth. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt. This is a tough thing. I mean, vacationing on, on Pluto, well, even vacationing on Mars, that's not in the immediate future. That's dead obvious. But on the other hand, it's worth pointing out that none of this violates physics, Right? It's not that you can't do any of this stuff. We're not talking about the problems of a science nature that would keep you from vacationing on these places. It's all, you know, if you will, just engineering and economics. So that says to me, you know, it'll happen. It will happen. I really liked Andy's choice of Miranda as a destination. You don't hear that every day. You know, Miranda's a small thing. It's, it's the smallest of the five big moons, if you will, of Uranus. Uh, it was only found in 1948, so, you know, that isn't so long ago. It's that small. It's hard to see. It's, it's about the size, actually, of uh, Mount Olympus. This whole moon isn't a heck of a lot bigger than that mountain that you might climb on Mars. It's uh, an amazingly small thing. And then Michael Bush said that some asteroids have moons, and then do those moons have moons? 
Uh, I don't know. Is it infinite regress? Yeah. The, the moons could have moons, but it's a little unlikely because then you get a three-body system, and that often is unstable. So I don't know that the moons have moons. It isn't moons all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> well, the possibility of living on an asteroid brings us to the question— now that we've taken an imaginative tour of holiday spots in the solar system, from Mars to Miranda to Pluto to the asteroids, realistically, when might humans begin packing for their solar system vacations? Final thoughts from Andy Fracknoy. Well, okay, Andy, the obvious questions here. I mean, you can do some space tourism today if you're well-heeled enough, right? You can just pay money and either go up and come right back down or go up uh, maybe and go into orbit, right? There's that opportunity, too, at a higher price point. And so I, I just assume that space tourism is going to begin, you know, with that kind of a trip in orbit. But these sorts of destinations are far more interesting, it seems to me. When's this going to happen? Everybody's going to want to know. Well, I wouldn't put my deposit down quite yet. This is, of course, a fun exercise for students and fans of the solar system, but the reality is that most of these places are quite dangerous and difficult to get to and difficult to survive in or on. And so my suspicion is we've got another century or so at least before any kind of regular tourism becomes the norm for our solar system. Andy Fracknoy, thanks so very much for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure, and uh, happy tourism to all your listeners. Andrew Fracknoy is chair of the Astronomy Department at Foothill College, and thanks to him for providing us with this solar system vacation tour. Thanks to the bodies that help produce this show and never go on vacation, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Bantz. Also, thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Solar System Vacation. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, you'll find it on our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer listening to over-the-air radio because it reminds you of all those long drives on your family holidays, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station's not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and uh, have a comment, a criticism, maybe a suggestion? Well, leaven it with some faint praise, and then email it all to bigpicturescience at seti.org. Hey, who are you? Hello, son. I'm Agent Brown from Pentagon Cybercrime Task Force. I'd like to ask you a few questions. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.